this is a lifelong network that you're building, not just for the fame or the hell of it. This is The Sparkcast, a bi-weekly show where we explore the creativity, technology, and business of CG. I'm your host, Marina Antunes. From the moment she learned to read, Audrea Topps Harjo has been a creator, first turning words into worlds in her mind, and then sharing those stories she loved so much with her family as a performer. Her passion led her to filmmaking in various forms, from telling her own stories in her own voice as a director, to helping other creators bring their visions to life. A skilled problem solver with a knack for breaking down complicated problems and navigating complex work environments, Audrea has made a name for herself as someone you can turn to when you need help, be it setting up something new or stepping in to bring teams into alignment. From Washington, D.C. to L.A., New Zealand, and back, Audrea has not only worked everywhere, but she's also worked with everyone. And in our conversation, she shares insight into her career, from the early days of 90s Hollywood to her start at Sony Pictures Image Works and adventures at Electronic Arts and Lightstorm Entertainment. Along the way, she discusses culture shock, otherness, and how taking risks has been a cornerstone of her career. Here's our conversation with Audrea Topps Harjo. I was reading that your love for storytelling actually started with reading. So can you share a little bit about that first passion and how you came to love books? Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the interesting thing is, is like, it took me a long time to read. Like I was a late reader and um, I didn't really read until maybe about second grade or so. I had been faking it for so long by memorizing all the books in my library because my mama would read to me. But words to the concepts to the words, it just didn't get into my brain for some reason. And so I really had to take a step back and just just go word by word, line by line. And I didn't know about the babysitter club or like young adults. So I went straight to like interview with the vampire. I don't know why. <laughs> I just went straight to Anne Rice. I, I was thinking about this the other day because I'm like, okay, so you would have been like, what, 10? Yes, yes. Went straight to Anne Rice. It just took me like months to read it. And then I just kept getting faster and faster. I just started, I read everything she did. Stephen King is still prolific. I mean, he, I read everything that he done. And then I just realized I could live multiple lives just in between pages. And it was, it was kind of cheap then. I mean, I, I hate to say it like paperbacks were like $3 back then. Right? Now they're like 10, 20, but back then it was like, you know, for, for allowance money, you could get a whole new world. So that's what I did. I just, I just love being transported. And, and I think probably a, a quirk of my brain, I never really saw the words anymore. I just saw a whole scene. So all, every movie was just a picture for me. And I remember I had sat down and read the stand, I think all thousand words of it. And um, I was kind of, and, and I wouldn't just read it. I would act out all the chapters for my family. I'm like, okay, this is what happened next. Right. So I'd act, I'd act out the book. And I think I, I was acting out the stand and I think it was like, not this version uh, with Skarsgård, but the but the one before, I think with Ruby D was playing God uh, on that version. And we were watching it on television and my mom was like, I saw this already. I'm like, no, I just acted it out. You know, <laughs> you did not see it. So I mean, clearly storytelling and the visual part of stories were always an important part. So when did you decide that that's what you wanted to do for a living? 
You know, it's so funny. I think it was always in my bones. I mean, in, in DC is, you know, it's, it's known for like, you know, politics and teachers and lawyers. It's not really, and we, we really appreciate the arts, but you know, with the Kennedy Center and all that great stuff happening here at Arena Stage, but it was never working. It was always kind of visiting people from New York or LA and all those things. It really wasn't a, a pathway to see how to get there, but it was always in the back of my mind. It was something that I really wanted, wanted to do. And so I think I, I I picked up my junior high school uh, yearbook and it said, you know, I'm going to be working in movies. I'm like, I said that, you know, I got, <laughs> that's how it, it was like, I'm going to do it. And I gravitated towards uh, theater and college because that was what was offered to me then at Wayman Mary, uh, which was a great foundation of just like, just putting things together and seeing how things work and analysis and character and costumes and lighting. Those is a wonderful foundation. And I think once I finished uh, undergrad, I still had that burning passion to work in film, like somehow. And I looked at UCLA and NYU, and I knew uh, I wouldn't be able to afford them. So I worked full time and enrolled in Howard University film program at night. And so I worked during the day and I was started to make movies at night. And that's what I did. And at the end, I had, you know, three movies and I was a filmmaker. And uh I just, I guess for, 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 for those folks, it's like, it's never went away. Like I just knew I had to do it. And even when I left Howard, I didn't really have any um, connections to anything, anybody, you know, it was just like, I just kind of willing away. I had, I had uh, my, one of my short films, Raw Intensity actually played at the Angelica Film Center the same time that Paul Anderson's Cigarette and Coffee was there. So I got to hang out with Paul Thomas Anderson and back in the day before he went to Sundance, you know, it was like, you know, way back. He's like, hi, Paul. You know, he probably don't remember me, but uh, we did that. And Kurt Baltz was fresh with Reservoir Dogs and Quentin Tarantino had won the Kodak Award that year. So it was like really the kind of resurgence of like the like early 90s uh, filmmakers were just kind of budgeting out at that time. And that was with an independent feature film project. And they had a sister uh, group in Los Angeles. And I just went to a mixer there and just so happened to meet a filmmaker who was actually shooting that weekend. And I glommed onto that project and like the rest was history, but it was like one of those kind of happenstance and LA, it was tough at that time, right? Cause there was no Atlanta. There was no, you know, New York was still happening like the gritty kind of avant-garde movies, but LA or bus at that time, there was no Canada. There was no in tax incentives. It was like, if you didn't make it there, you just weren't working. And so the daunting nature of having a hundred thousand people come every month and you had to compete with those people or you weren't eating, you know, it's not for the week. I I tell (laughs) you, it's not. I want to come back to Howard and like the early nineties in Hollywood. I, I first wanted to ask you about your parents and it sounds like you don't come from a family that works in the industry at some point, like were your parents ever concerned that you were going into this area that you know it would be always hard for you it's the arts are hard they would have worried about me if I'd ever been a little kid I was never a little kid I was one of those never I was an adult in a tiny body always right and so and reading all those books didn't help it just compounded like all those lives like tenfold I've just got older and older and older as, as the years go by and I just had a really strong will I mean I really I always did really well in school I was laser focused on things I always did what I said I was going to do and so just with that kind of grit in there um, my parents were educators um, and my dad started off as a police officer in the DC uh, police force back in the day. I think it was one of the original mod squads, you know, like the kids with the baby face and going undercover. He did that. Um, and then he left to become a science teacher. 
and my mom was a history teacher. So I always had a really deep seated love of history and those all that's just stories um, as well. She was a she was a black history teacher as, as well back in the you know the 70s. And she just kind of rose up the rank. And so I saw her take on leadership roles. I think before she retired, she was like second in command of the DC school system. And then she went on to, to train other leaders uh, countrywide of how to be an administrator across, you know, secondary school level. So she was very driven in that way. And my dad just loved stories. I mean, he was like, they were very much yin and yang. And I would go to the movies with him like every weekend. And he was my like little buddy that we would, we would just go and tell story. We love Star Trek. And like, he just really fostered all of that. And I think when he was a little kid, he was a little kid that read the entire encyclopedia, you know, and those salesmen would come door to door. And so he would be the master of Jeopardy right? He would just know all that. How do you know these things, right? So I came from a really highly intelligent, really supportive um, family. And they never once, my mom just said, hey, we would just prefer you not to wait tables. If you can't do that, you know, just do something else. We would just, because that's not going to make you enough money to pay everything you need to pay. Back then, you know, we were actually working on film. So I'm developing film. And so at that point, film was actually a thousand dollars a minute. And so my thesis was 35 minutes long. And so I left film school with that debt with like no way to kind of pay it, which is another reason I'm like, I'm going to LA where they take this seriously. <laughs> they need to eat. They don't take it seriously here. This is not a part-time job. I need to pay for all this. You you mentioned how, you know, Howard wasn't necessarily your first choice, but I've also heard you talk very fondly about how that experience and how they have more a more holistic approach to filmmaking was really beneficial. Can you talk a little bit about that? Being in D.C., you know, I, I can't stress enough that, you know, you're, you're not the other in D.C. You know, there's a predominantly Black city at that particular point in time. Howard is, is a historically Black college, and it's really deep-rooted in tradition. And a lot of, you know, people like the Allen sisters and, you know, Chadwick Boseman recently, you know, they all really have a high expectation and for hearing your own stories, right, and not having to justify your point of view. So that was one. So that was really great that I didn't have to kind of take that extra step of like prove that my stories were worthy or that I had an audience. So that was one. But with all that saying, it was deeply rooted in the independence thinking of like, nobody's going to help you. So there's no tracks. Like I think the other schools have like, this is a director track, this is a producer track, this is a writer track. We all kind of get together to form a thesis because we've all been trained in that. With Howard is like, you know, here's your piece of paper and Godspeed, make a movie, you know? <laughs> it's like, so you have to do all of it, you know, craft service locations. And and um, we were able to kind of work on each other's projects. And so since my superpower was organization, I always ended up being kind of the AD, right? Like, let's break it down. Let's get the work done. And I was, I, I think I met one of my old classmates when I came back from New Zealand at, in LA. And he was talking about me from film school. He goes, she had a little clipboard. And she's like, we're not playing around. I was like, oh yes, that was me. Again, never a, ch- never a child. So I was just that person. And kind of leaning into the, the fact that film will always need organization. You know, that was just my natural way of organizing. And, you know, going back to my books, it wasn't that I read books and put them down. I read the books and organized them by genre, what I thought about them. I wrote many reviews. I mean, I was like, that's just how my brain was just working. So all of that complex things are really easy for me to kind of digest and, and execute against, even myself, you know, <laughs> I just like, just wait for other things. But I was already doing it to self-inflicted organization for me. But but yeah, it was really a great learning. I mean, Haile Garima um, was one of my uh, professors. You know, he was really famous. You know, going to you know UCLA and winning the you know the Lion over at um, at Venice and opening the doors. But 
his way was like a movie every 10 years. So that's what it normally would take to kind of mount something just so, you know, outside the, the realm, even with his, you know, reputation being in the class with Charles Burnett and all those amazing filmmakers out of that, out of that school. But for me, I was like, again, I need to, I don't, I don't want to do 10 years. I want to make a movie. <laughs> I don't, I don't want to do that. So, but I took all that learning and it was great. Uh, my thesis film was nominated for an Academy Award that year, which was really, which was really nice. Um, and I remember Paul Thomas Anderson calling me going, why are you in the reporter? Like, I understand, like, why? <laughs> he was like upset with me. I'm like, dude, if I can see the future, you'll be fine. But like, right then, <laughs> he was a little, little miffed at me uh, for, for being in the, the Academy for, for, the, for the reporter, that little dude. Anyway. That's pretty much it. it was really good because, you know, it was, it was helpful because it was offered no help, if that makes sense. It's like, you know, this is what, it, if you want to do it, you have to go out there and grab it. We're not going to spoon feed you. I was really lucky because most of my um, classmates were working in DC from, because, you know, Virginia is not very far from DC. And so they were actually working in arena stage. My, my good friend, Godfrey Simmons, I had starred in a lot of my short films. He was actually starring with Jeffrey Wright at Arena. I'm like, if I could just get Jeffrey Wright, could you please? And he goes, or try ask them, but he's going to Angels in America and the rest is history, right? But I was so close. I was so close. And I was just, so I had this like, we had a um, uh, Hispanic character, Latinx character in my thesis. And I was like, you know what? Tuna Bandera's just started. Let's call his agent. And I did. He's like, oh, you're so cute. But that was my Madonna, I was always like just shot for the stars. Like, why not? I now, let's jump forward now to LA. And you were talking about, you know, how it was a totally different time in the 90s. LA really was the place to go to make it happen. On top of that, there was also a lot of change in Hollywood in the 90s. Like, you know, you alluded to the the rise of indie filmmaking. What was that time like for you? I was working at a dress shop. Actually, it doesn't exist anymore, but I was working at a dress shop in Marina. And my friend was like, hey, you know, because I did three features um, in L.A., like as a UPM. But of course, features are not, st- I mean, you do it. They're happy to do it. And then it's over. And luckily, at that time, if you weren't in the studio, you didn't work consistently, right? You're just so happy to just work it all. And that, that particular filmmaker was able to at least do three in a row, which I was able to, to work with them on. But. I still needed to kind of figure out how to eat because, you know, rent was every month. And so I just got a regular job. One of the PAs on the show that I'd worked on, she says, hey, if you go to Universal and you go to the guard, you kind of see if you can get in, maybe we'll do it. It was break our resume. I'm like, all right. So we went to Universal. And I don't know if you know, there's a back lot of Universal where the bungalows are, like right by the water. So the guard, like they, I guess he's like these crazy girls. He let us in. And there was a show that was wrapping out or like winding down. And I like I passed my resume over to like the PA and they were kind of kind of wrapping out. And he goes, oh, okay. And they called, he called me like maybe two days later and wanted to know if I wanted to start. And so I just got the job, you know, the little dress job for like whatever, a dollar an hour, whatever it was. And I was like, but why would I turn? It was only for two weeks. I said, but this was kind of permanent, you know, dresses, you know, a little six, they're all going to be there. But I was like, you know, I think I'm going to take the two-week gig. You know, what can I lose? You know, I don't want to make dress. I didn't come all the way out here to sell dresses, even though it's paying my bills. I came out here to work. And so I get over there to the to the place. I report to work and I'm there for the day. And in comes a production coordinator. And she's like, who is this? He goes, I needed help. He goes, she goes, you can't hire people. <laughs> the PA hired me. He goes, you don't have me authority to hire anybody. She goes, you know what? If she's not good, she's gone. Right. And I was like, okay, you know, thank you. So thanks for the opportunity. So I, I made it through the day. 
And then two days later, like, well, we have to do reshoots. Is there anybody who has AD experience? I was like, well, I just did, you know, two features. And she's like, okay, well, you're it. And so the guy that hired me that week, he had to work for the AD. (laughs) Why are you, why am I working for you? So funny. It's still my favorite story. Um, and, and And from there, I met Joanne Toll, who was the production manager at the time. She's still working. I think she worked for Chandraland for a while. I think she just finished doing and treatments lately. I mean, she's still in the business and she was amazing. And I, I shadowed her, was our production uh, coordinator for almost a year. And she got called to work for the head of HBO and she was going to New York. She goes, but before I go, I'm gonna turn you over to my, my good friend, David Lipman over at US Animation. And now David Lipman was a wonderful producer, very British. Um, he was one of the first producers they hired over at DreamWorks. He was a producer on Shrek. But the team that he call, called me in on, I was working for him, was working in a place called U.S. Animation with old with um, past Disney executives. And they had software that would be digital ink and paint. So they did like Ren and Stimpy and they did Lucky Charms commercials instead of like painting cells by hand. It was really click and all it spread, you know, so it was really efficient. So um, I worked with him for about six months and realized he was entirely too nice and I would be stuck under him forever. I mean, just amazing, amazing person. So the production manager who was the production manager of the floor, like the floor manager for the, for the studio, like tiny little like studios, a tiny little shop. Um, her husband was actually working on a television series and his producer was looking for an assistant. So I applied for that job and I got it. And so I left David, um, he went on to be Hanna-Barbera and then, you know, I did those other things and I actually replaced myself with somebody who he kept for 10 years. I'm like, I knew it. I knew people would never leave you. Because <laughs> he's not amazing. I was like, I'm glad I left. But he went on to DreamWorks and amazing, you know, that the rest is history with all the Shrek franchise. I think he's at Frame Store now. Anyway, um, I went to took the studio, the, the, the gig in television. And lo and behold, it was Zalman King's Red Shoe Diaries with David Duchovny. Back in the day, and so I was working with Butch Cap. He was amazing. He was a UPM uh, executive producer on that. Learned so much. I was his assistant before he went on to do other things. And I was assistant to Zalman um, for for a season. And so uh, from there, I met a wonderful uh, person who's working in the accounting firm, Jeanette Volturno. Now, cut to, you know, 30 years later, Jeanette Volturno used to run Bloomhouse, right? So she has her own company now, Catchlight. Uh, but back then, she's like, hey, I'm going to go over to Sony Pictures to be coordinate on James and Giant Peach. And I was like, well, look, I still need food. So if there's anything I need to do over at Sony, let me know. And so she, so I, I freelance for another year. And she says, hey, there's a job for either digital coordinator or software coordinator. And by the time I got there, the digital coordinator was taken, whatever any of it was, but the software coordinator was still open. And so I met with the head of this department, who was a woman, by the way, I did not know how rare that was, a woman head of the department. And she's like, well, do you know anything about C++ or Perl or any of the languages? I'm like, I have no idea. No, I don't. She says, well, what do you know how to do? And I'm like, I tell people what to do really well. She goes, you're hired. So I started started with no experience with Sony Pictures on the lot, you know, and um, had to learn it from the ground up. And it was, I was responsible. I think we had like 20 uh, engineers. There was no really set software then, right? Every studio was building its own software. Rhythm Hughes, ILM, they all had their own, kind of own proprietary software. And, um, and ImageWorks was no different. And um, I just learned it from the bottom up. Like I just, just picked their brains. Like, what do you write? And how do you write? And how long does it take? And at that time, I was working on four movies at once. I think it was like The Craft and Anaconda and Cable Guy and Ghost in the Darkness. They were all kind of happening. And 
I just had to learn the lingo and just absorb it, you know, but that's, that was my start. Just no experience, just picking it up. <laughs> just picking it up. <laughs> you mentioned something earlier when you were talking about David and how you realized that he was so nice. If you stayed there, you would have been there for 10 years. What drove you to, you know, you still have to pay rent. You don't really have the next gig lined up. What drives you to call a good thing quits because it's not the ultimate goal? I'm a big proponent of like creative visualization. Even though I didn't have a word for it, I knew that I had a goal in mind. I knew, again, I just had this thirst to get, you know, bigger. You know, it wasn't about comfort. Like I, again, David is still an amazing person, but I didn't come there to do that. Like, you know, I came to tell a story. I came to make a difference. I came to to really make an impact, like all young people that go out to Los Angeles. And um, as 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 wonderful as that job was, it was starting to become really safe because I wasn't stretching myself. I wasn't learning. It was something I could kind of do in my sleep. And it wasn't that I was bad at it. I, I mean, I, I can't be bad at anything or else, again, go back to your fire, you know, replaced. So it wasn't that I was bad at it. It was just that, you know, I, I knew I just wanted to be closer to the filmmaking process. And um, and I and I I practice something that I, I'm hopefully the kids now are more intent of like the people who are next to you. They are your network. They're the people that will take you to the next level. So it's not like grabbing for, oh, well, that star or that, you know, executive. It's really the people who are sitting next to you because they know you the best and then you kind of grow together. And I was always a proponent of like, learning from the best, being able to be the best. And I guess there's a software IO, garbage in, garbage out. The same thing is with excellence. So I always tried to surround myself and be in that position of excellence so that I would always know and learn from the best. It's just, that's that's what I went. And um, yeah, which is a drive, you know, that gives constant drive to improve and get the best. And so interesting enough, when I was at Sony for, and look, I was freelancing, they didn't know me from Adam, but I, it, it take me a year to kind of get staff. And I don't know, back in the day, if you get staff at Sony, you get all the discounts, you get like TV wrap off. You're like, those things are gold. Like, you know, you get insurance, you know, it's like, oh my God, I finally staff. And it took me a long time to get there. A lot of signatures, a lot of, you know, proof and working with Lincoln who, who had come down from ILM with Debbie Nice and Ken Ralston and Sheena, you know, they'd all come down after Forrest Gump to kind of infuse image works with kind of like that ILM magic. Uh, Cause they brought, I think Bob Zemeckis with them for contact, right? So now, so now it's not just John Nelson, you know, won the Academy Award for Gladiator, but now it's like, now we have a whole new uh, group of people to kind of raise and elevate uh, the studio when those guys showed up. And uh, Stephen Rosebaum was also one of those folks as well. And so you get a whole new brain trust because they just know it. They just know how it works. I mean, ILM had been standard since Star Wars. I mean, they had been, you know, had been decades old. So they just know how to run things. It was really great to watch. But going back to that, when I was in the software department and I've been there for a year and it's time for me to get to promote it. It was like, I'm not an engineer, you know, I'm just, you know, it, it's like that, my favorite dream girls, you know, song, you know, fake your way to the top. Like, I don't know what I'm doing. Like, <laughs> so like, I did it. And they're like, okay, well, I can't get promoted in software. I'm not an engineer, right. I'm not an engineer, but I was able to, to do it, you know, and to do the job. And so I got an offer like, Hey, well, Audrey, you know, we have this show that's coming up. It's, 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 uh, it's in its kind of final six months. Do you want to be the digital production manager? And I'm like, well, I said, well, what is that? Like, well, you have to make it up. And so from being an AD, I just took the same principles of being a strategist for an AD for live action and just immediately applied it to digital. 
I just made that name. That was a job for me. That was a translation. And I love that job. I was really good at it. But now I just had 100 and, 360 people and going from end to end, from film in all the way to film out and all the things in between. And that was now I was responsible for it. And I think I look back on it. It's all the stuff the supervisors didn't want to do. I don't want to do researches. You do resources. You do that. I don't do with people. You do that. I don't be like, oh, I was like, wait a minute. You know, <laughs> wait a minute. But I remember Jerome, I still call him to this day, General Chen. I love Jerome Chen so much. Jerome Chen would be in my face every single day. He's like, okay, well, how many props? What's the film out? What's the schedule? What, what, are we, what are we trying to get today? And I was like, what do I need to do that you're not my face every single day? He goes, have the answers before I ask. And I'm like, yes, that is a goal of mine and I will do it. And so that was, that was, that was my training, right? It's like, mm -mm. and the other side was Debbie Nice. And I, she, you know, she was the EP, still love today, my favorite, favorite mentor and boss. She was like, I was working so hard. Like I was up at eight, there 8 a.m. and leaving at 8 p.m. and working so hard and trying to get all the information and write reports and trying to get it all figured out. And so she called me up to her office and it's like, I thought she's gonna give me a pat on the back. And she's like, well, well, Orgia, you know, can you do this job? I'm like, what do you mean? you're here too long, which means you don't know what you're doing, which means that you're not working smart. So you need to figure out how to work smart or we'll find somebody else. I'm like, that was the best lesson anybody told me. And I'm like, from that moment on, it was more smarter, not harder. And I kept that with me and stuck to those rails, regardless of whatever culture I was in visual effects wise, because she was right. Because there was no, there was no glory and working crazy and being diminishing returns of like, getting some pat on the back or some some kind of prize. And it still was still hard because we still worked, you know, seven days a week on contact. But again, I made it, I worked with amazing people and that was my first throwaway. And after when I got into when I got to contact and I took the offer. And because I was losing staff, you know, I said, hey, you know, well, what's the new offer? And they're like, well, I said, I'll, I'll do it if you double my salary. They're like, okay. So that's what they did. <laughs> Don't ask, don't get. The beauty of it is, you know, after contact, they actually hired me back as staff at my new salary level. So I did um, Starship Troopers and I did, you know, Godzilla. And then for a while I worked with Stan Zemanski on the facility side, but then I missed production so much. And then I went back to work on Stuart Little uh, as an animation producer. And we got to go to the Academy Awards that year, which is fun. And uh, we, just, we started getting Spider-Man, but then I started to get kind of burned out because that old itch of uh, filmmaking was kind of getting back to me. I was like, okay, it's been four and a half, almost five years here at Sony. I mean, it's a wonderful, but I want to do, you know, other things. And so I jumped off the train and went back to live action and had my own production company and made martial arts movies of all things, uh, stopped and had a kid, came back, you know, I was out for about a year or so. Um, and then jumped back right back into X-Men 2 over at Cinecite. And again, those are my old buddies from, from I know, um, Arnon uh, Manor, who was there. He's uh, still at Sony, he's executive now. Greg Anderson, who was, he's, who was over there supervising on that famous band. I mean, it's, that we had no idea that was going to be standard, you know, but he was making it. And yeah, they all called me back, I think. Um, yeah, it was great. Stephen Rosenbaum was over there. I think Ralph Ram, like all, it was almost like an old you know, kind of Sony reunion. Uh, working at Cinecide. And after Cinecide, I went over to work with Rhythm and Hughes uh, for Garfield, left Rhythm and Hughes. And um, yeah, it was just, it was just crazy. Which for that, the Sky Captain with, uh, with uh, Maricel, who was over there and, and Joyce Cox, who was amazing visual effects producer. And uh, yeah, I just, I just always kind of 
defaulted back to visual effects, whatever it, whatever it was. After Sky Captain, that team is going to Australia to work on Superman Returns, right, with Brian Singer. And I knew I couldn't go to Australia with a little baby. So I had to pivot again. And now I'm working in electronic arts because I was living in Playa Vista at the time. And, play, and electronic arts was across the street from me. And I was like, I need to work there because my daycare is over there. <laughs> so I, was like, I just need to, because everything is really convenient. And again, creative visualization. Uh, one of the recruiters, Robin Tompkins, she worked with me over at Sony and she was now recruiting for EA. And she goes, hey, there's a, like a development manager job there. I know you can do it with your eyes closed. Hey, you need to work. And I said, like, of course I do, but it's, it's games. I was like, well, I figured out visual effects. I know I could figure out games, you know. And uh, I interviewed with them. It took seven hours, an hour each department because they were working in Microsoft Project because it was a software tool to schedule. They, I'd also use it at Sony. So um, they asked me if I played games. And I'm like, no, I'm a single mom. No time for that. And they're like, you know what? We love your honesty. You're hired. And they hired me as staff. And, and Robin was like, I don't know what you did, but they're taking an engineer spot for you. So welcome aboard, you know? So I started at EA and I was three years on the console side, working on Medal of Honor series. I started off working on animatics, right? Because those are the, those are the ones in the interstitials uh, cut scenes because that needed um, animation. And it was pretty, pretty straightforward. And I worked with a wonderful editor, Melissa Lawton, who's Lawson, who's now editing for, for Marvel and doing amazing things. But right there, she was just my little editor working on the little, the little, uh, little cut seeds and Neil Young was running the studio at the time and Arcadia Kim was COO and she was like really wanted to foster women in the industry and she had just fresh out of Harvard you know Harvard uh, getting her um, MBA from Harvard in games and uh, she had a lot of processes and procedures in play and it was just really a really great time to to be there and I was there I think the longest I was there for six years three years on the mobile side I mean on the console side and three years on the mobile side because Neil left. Neil left the one to start his own company in Gmoco. And um, I was just there to kind of help shadow him. So uh, it was great because I was with Neil at his elbow for an entire year. I, was, I saw Spielberg every week because they were doing the Spielberg game. It got canceled, but it was still great to see Spielberg. And he was such a sweet guy. And um, and just being at the elbow of GM was just incredible. Um, and he went about his way. And so I just needed another a connection. And it's so funny, Kathy Weibach, who was head of play at that time, I started the gym every day. I didn't know who she was until we had a meeting, a GM meeting, and she was there like, oh, hey, I saw you at the gym. And so when Neil was going back to the Bay Area, you know, I, I was too low on the totem pole for him to take me. I asked her, I'm like, hey, I need somewhere to be. She goes, well, hey, I'll, let's see about mobile. And next thing you knew, I was over at mobile and I was now had a global organization. Um, and I had to speak another new language in the sense that nobody got my Buffy references. Like we're from Canada. We don't know what you're talking about. I was like, okay, well, I got to change my language. Nobody understands my Buffy references. So yeah, that was the first time. It was like now internationals had a company in Romania. They had England. They had Canada. Of course, the United States, like all these, you know, Jamdat, um, which is what EA had acquired. And I had to learn, again, I had to learn a whole new language. That was, iPhone had just come out. So they're trying to figure out what the marketplace was. We could even imagine iPhone without the marketplace. It was, you know, back in the day. And if you tried to tamper with it, it shut down and it became a brick. And they were like really trying to figure out how to monetize that. So EA was really the forefront of that. And I was running multiple projects at once all over the world and worked with JC Bordighi, who's now I think C C co-CEO of uh, uh, Scopely over there. Wonderful teacher. Like I always had these amazing teachers that kind of show me the way who were veterans uh, to get me through. Once I left electronic arts, 
I got a call from Cindy Oates, who at that time was one of the senior producers over at What a Digital. Now, Cindy Oates was running film on contact. She was a PA getting the film to the lab and back and forth. But over that time of 16 years, she went to Weta early or after contact. You know, she took the, you know, her and Mike Perry, a couple of Sony people had kind of made that leap directly to Weta. And she made a really great leap for herself, you know, and she she did a lot of great stuff down there and she they needed a, somebody to help run the creature department. And again, it was now digital doubles, software, simulation for hair and uh, muscles. And it was all photo real. So, cause Weta was not playing. Um, they were also not playing by their OT because it was a lot. And it was nine movies in two and a half years, which I would not recommend. Yeah, all of it, you know, from The Hobbit to Man of Steel to Avengers to Iron Man 3 to Prometheus, uh, Able and Vampire Hunter, Wolverine, I mean, on and on and on, little 1010, they were all all there. Um, and it was great. And again, you just now, my, my network is now worldwide, right? And one of the kids that I'd hired as a, a just a TD, you know, he called me back, you know, you know, jumping ahead to the future to come back, say, hey, Orge, I'm running a company. Can you help me? It's a game company. Can you help be kind of be my number two? And um, I came over to do that. And I had an experience because I was worked with Neil Young way back then, you know, it's so I knew what that job was like. I went to New Zealand and I did not know the world was going to shut down, but it, it did. It shut down all the way down. And I was, I, I can't tell you how far New Zealand is when you can't travel like you. It was already far because you're traveling 24 hours at the end to get back home. But I was really like, wow. Book had a ship, right? Can I get a ship? <laughs> can I get a ship to come back home? <laughs> I guess a ship I can sail back home because it's far. But before, you know, coming back to New Zealand, you know, when I was uh, when when I was at New Zealand the last time, and I was running out of, um, you know, because once once I mastered something, I just it's time to do something else, right? Because I just need that challenge. I remember talking to Joe Latieri. I was like, Joe you know, thanks for all the, you know, I love running the creature department, but it's time to go. You know, my kid's getting older. I need to put her back in the American system because I'm not going to be here forever. And uh, he said, hey, you know, what do you like doing? I'm like, well, my specialty is working with really brilliant, really kind of would say challenging to manage people. He goes, do you want to work for Cameron? I'm like, here we go. So they put me on Avatar, the sequels. Steven Rosenbaum was on there at the time, you know, an old friend against Sony. You know, he was there. He worked with them on the first Avatar. He was back there. And so I met Richie and the crew and John, I worked for John Landau and well, interviewed for them and, and moved back to LA and worked on the um, Manhattan Beach side for six months. And uh, and I remember John Landau says, Orgy, it's going to be three months, six months or 10 years. I'm like, no, it's not. <laughs> no, it's not. You can't be on this for 10 years. I don't believe you. Well, I'll just, we'll just see. We'll just see. And I knew I was a little old because I love post-production because post-production is just it, right? The shots are done. You just put the beautiful things in there and you said, there's no politics. It's just either looks good or not. And, you know, I know it's always nuances, but the work is pretty much done. But now when I'm on Avatar before we're in pre-production, it was a whole different ball. I'm like, oh my gosh, I remember this. I'm not a fan. I'm not a fan of the politics. And I ended up kind of kind of hiding my own little corner because those guys you know they're guys and uh, I remember one of the ladies she's like oh my god there's so few of us why don't you come out to lunch with us I'm like oh okay I was like okay if you're a nice lady turned out to be Amanda Silver who was one of the writers so I ended up hanging out with the writers <laughs> the entire time I was there like you're nicer than you guys I'm gonna feel me. <laughs> and that's what I did like every Friday the day we, we out to lunch to lunch and it was like 
you know, Rick Jaffa and um, Amanda Silver and my, my guy, Freeman, Josh Freeman, who did the Sarah Connor Chronicles. And yeah, we, we had a pool table. I mean, that pool table had a ping pong table with the obelisk from 20, 2001, the real one behind us. <laughs> I was like, only in life storm will have the real prop at, by the ping pong table. That was a lot of fun. And, uh, but, you know, they would start and stop production every so often for the writers to catch up. And so I had to get back home because my, you know, my mom was taking care of my daughter and I was like, I just need to get back home. And, and I left Lightstorm and started back over in DC. And it's like, there's no big studios here at the time. There was no, so I just had to start over and went back to my, my roots. So I made a short film here on my own and started directing some commercials and got involved with a book publisher. And she had a lot of IP, but she didn't know how to make it to a movie. She wanted to make it to a movie. That's her next brand. And so I was like, well, look, I'll consult. Because at first she said, she wanted, she asked me, I was like, no. She asked me again. I was like, I don't want to do it because it's too much work because you know nothing. and It's going to be hard. But she goes, oh, Joyce, please help us. So I said, okay. So um, I did the movie with them. And it, 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 no, I was only consulting for like a second until I had to take over and actually help them do it. Um, that movie was really successful. Um, I didn't think they would call me back, but they did. <laughs> it was like, oh, learning curve. But she's a phenom, you know, she was serious. And, uh, I, you know, it's, it's the Megamind uh, Media Limited Company. They have now, from that point, you know, eight years ago, they've now done 20 movies because she wasn't playing. And they're really successful now. And they, they have that wonderful niche of, like, telling stories about Black women, successful Black women. You know, there's redemption stories. They're not all perfect. But she's found that kind of perfect niche and she's, she was always an incredible marketer and she had her base based upon her book publishing. So she already had kind of audience to leverage, which I thought was very smart of her. And she's really astute businesswoman. She just needed to, you know, build her team around her. Most of her team was family. And so the one that she had the advantage of that, you know, she, they were all very wealthy. And so she could pull from her family to have the seed money. Then she paid them back with interest. So there was really no reason why they wouldn't continue to kind of invest, which is like sometimes new filmmakers don't have the luxury of like, well, I can fund this myself, which she was able to kind of have her own film school in a way. And then she learned very early to start reaching out to the to the networks in order to start funding, helping her fund. So now she's at the point now where she doesn't worry about it because she has a proven track record. And so after I did three moves with them, like kind of off and on, because in the meantime, I was kind of teaching and teaching film production in China and Curacao, like just, just kind of well, when I was off season. And I would catch her at American Film Market and we would kind of reconnect and I'd do another movie with her and then, and then go back. But um, yeah, so as soon as, as, soon as um, I came back from New Zealand, I would get calls like, when are you coming back? Okay, you going to come back, you going to come back. And, and so that was a movie we just, we just finished doing the Tanisa Welsh story uh, for, for BET Plus. And so that just wrapped and they have another movie coming again in um, September. So I'll be running that one as well. So I'll be in pre-production while I'm posting the other one. I got visual effects. I'm already calling my people. Like, I need some visual effects shots. Like, who can I call? So it's definitely uh, helpful to do all the things. I know all the things. So I'm really, really lucky that I have to rely on people translating for me. Uh, because, you know, I could just pull it myself, which has really been great. There's a lot there that I want to talk about. And I want to start with, you've worked with basically everybody in the industry at this point and on like so many like seminal projects. And to me, it's funny because I've heard you speak a lot and you always single out contact as kind of like your favorite. And it's not even like the biggest of those movies. What was it about the experience with that project 
that has remained with you over the course of your career? I think because it was my very first and it was just run so well. Like Ken and Debbie were just like really great partners. They, um, you know, Kid Ralston and Debbie Nice, they had worked together for a lot of times at, at, um, at ILM and they had a really good rapport. And so I think I, I truly believe that any good work comes from the top. And Ken was such a calming presence. Like he didn't have to prove anything. He was at the top of his game. Like there was no ego. Um, he refused to learn shot numbs, which I thought was hilarious. I'm like, you're, he's not learning what shot. He goes, you need to tell me what that is because I'm not. But, but again, since I acted out of the stand, I just acted out of the shots. So like, okay, this is the scene when, you know, so we would do that every morning. I'd act out contact for Ken because he refused to learn the shots. But he was just so cooperative. He was like, okay, well, how many shots do I have to get? You know, or do you let me know? You know, he was always so gracious and always wanted to help and so he was such a great leader in that way and Debbie because she'd been doing it for so long and had such a solid foundation she's just really good to just kind of watch her work and just you know bounce the nuances and Julia Rivas was a you know video effects producer at the time and she was really great at top of her game it was just the perfect project for me because everybody was really good and everybody wanted to do good and everybody the, it wasn't people not being able to do their job it was like well how do we do the impossible how do we make this huge movie with two terabytes of space? With that now, it's like that could fit in my pocket. But back then, it was like, let's get it off, let's film it out. Like I, I had like, you're hitting the film recorder this time, okay, and you're off. You're hitting the proc set, and it was like really intense. It was just so great. I mean, like Jay Red was on there, Sheena, Scott Stockdite, Jerome Chen, Steven Rosenbaum, you know, Rob Brinkman. They were like all titans are grown up, you know, either on the education side or you know, Sheena doing her own, you know building it to the you know wonderful vfx supervisor she is right now and jerome still being with sony after all these years he's still there doing jumanji and and directing you know you know robots over there for netflix and and uh you know scott Stockdike winning the academy award for spider-man and jim bernie i think he went on to do the virgin series like they they never really stopped and, and greg anderson as well he came he came after but it was just a wonderful time because it was just such great work. And we all were just so young. And we knew we were there doing something special, but it's I've never worked on a project that, that was ran that well and having so much fun doing it. I remember there was, because the power of 10 shop, that because Jay Red only worked on the power of 10 shop. It was six months. That's all he did. And he became an expert. And so that's why I love the fact he's still working on all mankind because he knows it by the back of his hand. And he's such a brilliant guy. I remember the fire alarm went off while that shot was screening because it, that shot was so long you couldn't it took almost 48 hours to record it over and the screening was like in 24 and I remember the alarms were going like no we're gonna sit here and watch this shot we're like we're crazy we all sat there we could have been in fire engulfed in flames as we sit there and watch this shot because that's how crazy we were and we laughed about it why why did we do that we did not leave we could have been on fire talking about we gotta see this shot crazy insane you've been working on the technology side for a very long time and you very casually mentioned that you just you know you have to learn it and it's by like almost like cosmosis but do you have any tips for folks that are kind of like in that similar spot because I mean the technology changes so rapidly and you may not always know all of the things what are some of the tools and tips that you use that you could kind of share that might make it a little bit easier to navigate the ever-changing landscape? That is a great question. And I see when people are coming in, especially on the production side, how difficult it is to kind of translate into the tech world. For me, listening and asking questions is the first thing. 
never be afraid to ask those questions. And they, but look, a lot of people are introverted and they're on the spectrum and they have all these things because they're brilliant. But if you find that one person who, who, who's generous enough to kind of explain to you how it all works, you know, treat that person to lunch and just ask questions. Because again, like you're right, the technology changed every second pretty much. And you needed to be there and hear what the intent of the software was, how it was designed, how it was built and what the use was for. And everybody else was learning at the same time. So you just had to be in that room to hear. Um, and then for me, just translating to real time, what that meant for time and what the dependencies were. Cause that's really what at all, like, I can't do this unless that, that happens and trying to shrink that time as much as possible. And I think that's the, the role of production um, for me. It's just like, how do you give them as much resources and space? And I have to think about all the, they just need to the space to do great, great work. Um, Again, my strength was always organization. So again, and I have close to photographic memory, which also helps. So when we were going through the shots, when there was no, you know, I think they renamed it now, but it was shotgun. There was no shotgun. It was just like the shots were going by. And that was just memory. Like I had to remember what the elements were and then go to each department, make sure it was happening. But I did have wonderful supervisors who was there to make sure that technically they would solve all the problems, but all the resource stuff was still um, my domain and uh, making sure the right person was doing the right um, job. But uh, but yeah, it's, it's, it's challenging because I, even on the game side, you know, I didn't even talk about how difference between the games and visual effects are video visual effects is really calming, right? Act one, act two, act three, here's my editorial cut. Here's my shots, no matter how world building they are, it's very, very linear and very calming because I just need to make that one picture be beautiful. No matter what the elements are, who needs to put in it, it's going to be signed off. There you go. But for games, when you're looking at a sandbox and there's nothing and the engines, because you're taking so long and are iterating on top of you, and then you have to figure out if it's fun or not, and then you have to figure out if it's performant. And I've seen the people, especially I was in New Zealand, the folks coming over from Weta with those amazing tools were like, what it is, but it's pretty. They're like, get it out. It's floating down the frame rate. You know, they were just being tears, you know, because they were like, what is this place? Like they didn't, they didn't understand it. And it wasn't just a one-to-one and I'd see senior people who are used to making lots of money and, you know, pride for their work kind of starting over with the babies that just got a media design school going, this little kid's whipping my tail. Well, yeah, because little kid has learned to work on Epic and he's working on the Unreal Engine and you would have to now learn it with all the traps and the containers that it inhales it. And that's, that wasn't, that wasn't easy. And so of all of the, the talent, I just always had a, a gift of just distilling, you know, what's the bottom line? what do I need to do? And the rest will just happen. And so the, it's just a matter of experience now, you know, I know every pipeline is pretty much the same, you know, you just, you know, every systems are before it used to be dust busting when we had film and not digital. And then it was like, okay, we'll just do the you know, rotoscope and let's do the match move. Okay. Well now, now let's design the animation let's do the models and let's, you know, bake those down and let's put controls and like animators, and let's do the effects and let's compositing. That's some lighting. I mean, that's pretty consistent. It's just a matter of like how the show wants to work or what the client needs to do. And the best thing about Weta, I remember they would tape all of the director notes. So if you wanted to, you could actually hear the director speak um, and tell you in real time, which I love to, to hear, you know, because I was just such a nerd about it. But it was really, really, really great. And I still, my favorite shot, and I still love it to this day. And it is my one contribution to Man of Steel when they're in the dome and Lois Lane kind of comes in and she's like new and the robot gets her and Clark has to come and open up her uh her jacket and uh you know she's wounded and there was nothing on the other side and I'm like hey 
don't you need to have something on the other side? One of the things that's clear is that your job is just as much about the tech as it is about the people, maybe even more about the people and the people management. Clearly, a lot of it has come from experience and your career in the industry and your track record. But it seems like you were always kind of like leading the charge and kind of, you know, managing people. Was there ever a time where you were kind of, because I mean, you were a young person at one point, not saying that you're old, but you know, you were very young and starting out at one point. And I'm assuming that there were always, there was always going to be people that are older than you that you're, you know, guiding and sort of being the boss of. Can you talk a little bit about that experience and how you manage that, you know, when you're working with a group that's diverse? Culture is so important. When I started, you know, we'll, we'll start back because you started when I was young. I, I was always kind of a born loner and I was always really clear on my purpose. And I think on that INTJ spectrum, which is really on task. And what I've learned is to have more res- respect or more um, compassion towards the feelers in the group. Um, sometimes the feelers are group you need them, but sometimes it gets muddled within the feeling of like, what's the through line? And so I was always the person to kind of come in with that through line, you know, that 20% of the population that's just like, okay, just the facts, man, like what, what are we trying to do? And so that, and being the kind of calm in the storm, because it's a lot. I remember, you know, when I came to Weta, they were not ready for me. They asked what military branch I worked in because they just knew from the get, like, I knew working in the military. You just think that, but I didn't. And, and now we're like the American version on top of the Kiwi version. You know, they have been used to it before, but I mean, there was also a lot of lax time because that's a culture. I'm an island, you know, it's an island culture. And they were not, they were not feeling working a lot. <laughs> just, they just didn't want to do it. And I remember I put policies and things in place that they were not comfortable with. And I remember they went to Eileen, bless her, bless her soul, and just said, okay, where'd you find her? Uh, we don't like her because they're, especially I'm a woman, they're expected to have lemon cakes and like tequilas. And I was so not about that life. You know, I was just there to work and I come from Sony and all the other Americans like, we, you guys make $100 an hour. Like, where's the work? What, what's what's happening, you know? And they were just not used to hearing it from me, especially a woman, a woman of color. And now they're being, they're telling them, you know, what their tasks are. And because that just wasn't the culture there. So I had to kind of bend the culture. And Eileen was like, she's like, Orgy, you know, they're, they're, coming at, they're coming to me with like pitchforks and signs, like I'm middle of Frankenstein, I'm like, cool. And she's like, well, you know, what do what, you, what, 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 well, what are you doing? I'm like, well, Elaine, I, you brought me over here because Creatures is a hub. It's been looking at like a stepchild this whole time. I'm going to clean it up to make sure we deliver. That's my sole purpose, regardless of the feeling or how I feel for them, because they're so used to tugging on, you know, that was in the past, been years and years and years, probably different now. But at that time, they're so used to pulling on those social strings that I, that didn't work on me because I was not really a part of the culture. I was always, you know, going to be by myself every day. Except for my kid, I would laugh and joke and say, it was just like, it's me and my kid and that chick on Spartacus. Like I was, there were no black women <laughs> and, and, you know, American women at Weta. It was me, you know? And uh, so already by default, I was an outsider. So I had no reasons uh, for them to not, um, you know, capitulate. This is what we need to get through. And I, I loved it so much. I think that's why it's so hard for me because um, I, because I did, inter- I did intern with the department of energy when I was all in college. And I was like, okay, the government life is not for me, but because it never ended. Some people like that kind of sea of like, oh, it'll be different. But for me, 
I needed that act three act structure. I needed it to end because I need to give it all we had and then rest and start over because I, I love seeing great things. And I was always in places where we're making great things that just need to be guided. And yes, it was really challenging. And sometimes you didn't win like me and I was so lucky to be at Sony because uh, behind Sony was a very Japanese structure, right? This is it. This is how we work. We work hard, we play hard, but at least that's really structured. When I went over to Rhythm and Hughes, very different, very kumbaya, very hippie, dippy, very babies. And I got senior people that wrote all the tools for them. And, you know, I was still, you know, I was a new mom at the time and they really didn't really care if I came in early because they stayed at four o'clock. So they didn't come in until 10. Well, by 10 o'clock, my day was almost over because I got to pick up my kid from daycare. So I got out of sync really quickly, but that was a really great lesson for me because I understood how culture, how important it was. So I'm like, well, doesn't everybody work this way? No, they don't. It wasn't all great. I mean, in all honesty, you know, we weren't a good fit. They're like, hey, where'd you, I, I don't think you're a good fit. And we have to, we're going to have to let you go. And I'm like, yes, it's mutual. <laughs> I want to be where, you know, I'm appreciative. I've been doing this for, I've been doing it for 10 years at that particular time. I know what my strengths and weaknesses are. And luckily for me, you know, I went straight, straight from the air to Skycapped. I think I was out of work for maybe a week, a week and a half before I jumped on to Skycapped. Um, cause Greg Anderson had pulled me over to be his, his uh, producer for him over there, but yeah, it was still hard because there were, you know, there's a time there people start working long hours and, you know, I'm a mom and that's my number one, you know, priority. And I remember working on, um, X-Men, uh, too. And my kid had to come with me to dailies on Saturday, you know, babysitters aren't working on Saturdays. They have time off. And so I just remember bringing my kid to the daily. She was a cool kid. She just sat there watching Wolverine, like everybody else. And, and uh, Brian Singer's like, hey, Asia, and Asia's mama, whoever you are, you know, yeah, <laughs> and I remember Greg, Greg, Greg Anderson was like, wasn't she in a stroller yesterday? She's walking today. I'm like, well, that's how it happens, you know, because she's one years old, you know, at the time. And, you know, she's always been my little, little cut buddy, but that's the other side. I mean, being a woman in the business was tough, you know, and I remember working at Weta. You know, they were like the Weta wives, like, oh, you're a Weta wife. I'm like, no, I'm a Weta. You know, there's no Weta wife for me. I I have to do both things as, you know, because that's the, that was the nature of the job. Um, but again, because my heart and soul was always organized, you know, I just produced my life and did, you know, the best that I could with that. But yeah, that was really, really tough. I don't think people really talk about what that means when you're working that hard and you have to pick between your real life. And these movies and, you know, I, I was married and not married because of the, the stress of movies making and, you know, the, those, their personal costs, you know, to that, that people don't really talk a lot about. And it all sounds wonderful. But at the time when you're working eight, six, seven days a week and you're working 60, 70 hours a week, it's not glamorous and people are at their worth selves. So when you come to how do you manage these people, you have first have to start with yourself. You have to figure out what your stressors are and you have to get through it. And even to this day, you know, when I had to work from sunup to sunup, you know, those are some stressors. And I remember I just had to kind of take a time out, like I'll be in the production trailer for a minute. You know, I don't want, I don't think you want to see me this way, you know, because your extreme self comes out of that and to kind of manage and have to think. And it's really challenging. But for me, I wouldn't want to be anywhere else because I really thrive in those crazy situations. There's nothing crazier than visual effects are trying to make games or physical production. That was just the most complicated because you don't know what you're going to get. Like every moment, there's going to be something 
that you have to problem solve. And I, for this job, people doing this job, they have to love solving problems. They just have to, because all you have all day are problems and you have to look at them like, okay, I, there's a problem here, but as soon as I figure it out, I'll just have that in my tool belt. And so next time I see it, I'll spend less time and I'll just be there. Okay. That's that personality. You know, there's only five personality types. You're going to see them all. It's like, well, that one doesn't really get along with me. So I'll be a little bit careful that one that we get along great, but we still have to get this thing done. And so for me, it's just the laser focus of like getting it done. I'm kind of relentless in that way, which is why, you know, they hired me. Like I, I told, I told y'all that I probably, probably heard the story already. And he goes, well, Audrey, you know, what's your specialty? And I'm like, well, you know, if you seen the Nikita, you know, and you know, the cleaner, you know, I'm the cleaner, you know, I, I come up and clean up the dead bodies. Like that's what they call me for. Like I come with glasses, my suitcase and, you know, and just, you know, make sure it all works. And so, yeah, that's, that's been it. But for people, they really want to, want to do it because people will try you. And I think it's gotten a lot better. I think people are more aware, but back then, you know, what I, reason I found it, inclusion effects was like, you know, I was the onlyest one for a really long time. I mean, it was so funny. Stan Zemanski would just like put all like the, 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 our, our um, mug shots from like our little ID badges and he had them and he posted them like, oh my God, they're just me again. You know, <laughs> it's like all the execs, they're just me, you know. All the wet up, they're just me, you know. All it's always is always just me. Even even that life store was like me and security, you know. It was just this just and I don't think people understand how isolating uh, and lonely that can be. You know, not just being a woman, but a woman of color in those situations. You really have to really defend yourself, and um, it's not their fault. It's just you know the way the world is stratified so long. It's, it's rare that people can kind of reach out across their own comfort comfort level to see it from somebody else's perspective. And that's been really challenging unto itself, but you survive it and you do it. That's the nature of the game. You know, you, I mean, we are going to the business it's going to be predominantly white men. I mean, that's just, that's just how it is. You have to learn how to just kind of speak their language and, and not take any mess. I just remember as progressive as New Zealand pretends, you know, having just into our dune and the first one, all that, you know, they're underneath, you know, they're still kind of 20, 30 years behind when it comes to relations and what they expect of women and men and all that stuff. And, and I'm talking about real life people like, not just on this world stage, but actually day to day. I was an outlier because I was not taking it. And I would see the shock and awe. <laughs> I would say like, oh, and I just went back down. You mentioned something that, you know, I want to touch on a little bit more. And that's the hardships that come from being a woman working in an industry that's still predominantly male. And on top of that, being another, you know, being a Black woman, being a mother, now being older. What? What can like and, and, and like you say, a lot of time it's not intentional. People aren't, you know, intentionally slighting you or overlooking something. You know, they really want to be allies. How can we be allies? What, what, what does that really mean, like on a day to day basis? And what what might not we be realizing that we're doing that's not actually helping? I think having honest conversations is just asking, you know, because another person asked me that as well, just asking if they're OK. Like, do you want to grab a cup of coffee? Are you doing all right? You know, just, you know, do you need anything? I mean, I think I think that's just a great start because everybody's needs are different. I mean, I, I think with more people joining the workforce, I think mentorship and like making sure that they're supported in that way, because it's just natural for God. I mean, guys, that's a given right? They'll always have mentors. They'll always have people looking out for them. They'll always be able to make mistakes and come back because the people who are running the, running things and have the money, they understand because they look like them. 
and they will want the same courtesy. But for me, an outsider, like, oh, you get one mistake and you're one and done. So there's so that added pressure of not being able to make any mistakes or move like the other is it can be really frustrating. And you see people who are in positions that you would, you know, that you had to bend over backwards and claw and scrape. And so there's like, oh, well, this you just kind of slid in. You're like, mm. and sliding in, does, he, does that person necessarily have the experience or the chops to do it? And then, then all of a sudden you're doing your job and theirs as well. And then when promotions come, they're like, oh, well, see ya, because I know blah, blah, blah. And uh, I'll be your boss later. And like, bad dude, you know, that's like, wait a minute. Clearly your career has been built on the relationships that you've made with people. Yes, it's about your skill and what you do, and you do it really well, but it's also about those people that you've connected with and that you've built a relationship with. What would you say to young people that, you know, might be a bit shy and, you know, may not feel comfortable going out there and, you know, introducing themselves to their coworker. And especially in today's landscape, I want to talk a little bit about work from home and that shift. What are some tips or some suggestions that you can give people to kind of like put themselves out there a little bit more? I've always tried to be my most authentic self. Like it's, it's just that human to human contact. I think at some level there is some connection, right? It's just really the, you know, there's always some type of meeting ground, whether they want to take the time to find it or not. You know, once you meet somebody heart to heart or and show your true self, if they're the right person for you to take them along in your journey, then then they're a friend for life. And it's not everybody. It's, it can't be everybody. You know, it's not gonna be that guy who was mean to you because of blah or one that was gonna belittle you. It's that person who you catch the eye of with something ridiculous and go, Okay, <laughs> we gotta talk about this later. You know, it's, it's really all for coffee. Or for, and and for me, that's what I did. I mean, like sometimes you know, one of my my good friends, you know, Wayne Kennedy is over at, um, you know, he works over at Epic right now. You know, super wonderful human being, just super talented. It would start off with like, hey, let's grab some lunch, and that lunch turned to like every two months we'd kind of go to Versailles on Venice, and we'd have like little Cuban food, and we talk about our plans for the future and what we want to do and how can we help each other. And, and over time we did exactly that. You know, we just, were just waxing fantastic. You know, he was on my first, you know, movie set when I came off, uh, you know, I was making my own company. Uh, he was there, you know, and lending support and was there for inclusion effects. Like these are the people that you're, they're always, you know, with you. Um, Sheena, I think because Sheena was such a rock star back then, we really didn't really reconnect until I started doing the work for Inclusion Effects. And I knew her and I loved her, you know, so much from afar, but it wasn't until we found a, a kind of a common goal that I was really talking to her every day and like, this is important to her. And so, you know, she's working with the Academy on it. Those things are passionate and authentic to me. I'm not doing it because I just want to meet Sheena. I'm doing it because, you know, we have a shared history. You know, I work for the department for a little bit you know, as well. We work together on contact and she's just an amazing person. And you go on and on and again, this is a lifelong network that you're building, not just for the fame or the hell of it. And look, I love my light storm people, but as soon as I was outside the family, I knew I was not going to get called again because outside was outside the family. And the funny thing is I've seen John Landau in LA, New Zealand. Like I've seen him like here. Like he's always embracing me, you know, all the time. But I'll tell the guys you saw them. Like, yeah, you do that. Um, but <laughs> I, I, I can't wait to see what they say about that. 
yeah, you know, but, but it's like, I'm not going to go to John's house for tea. That was not the relationship we had. You know, I'm sure some people on that team does do have that. And, and they, you know, they'll, they'll take it further. I mean, for me going, working on Lightstorm, I knew was like the pinnacle. And if I wanted to continue on this journey, I would stay there. But then I had to ask a question myself, same question I asked when I was addressed. Do I want to keep doing it this way? Do I want to kind of work backwards? Because I was running shows for Lightstorm because it was so huge. It's like, well, I'll just be running elements again. I'm like, well, that was, I did that 20 years ago. And do I just want it for the cachet of like, oh, I'm working on Avatar. But again, seeing Avatar, you know, 10 years, 13 years before, it's like, it was a wonderful movie. It's, it's an epic achievement. I'm so glad I was there to kind of see it, but it's still two and a half hours or three hours and that's it. I don't know because of the place in my career, like say older, whether that was sustained me for 10 years or whether it was worth 10 years, you know, going into my sixties on that. It wasn't. And that no offense or shame or anything. I think that's amazing. It's an amazing opportunity. Like, don't get me wrong. I love the, you know, like, oh, we went fishing and brought back sushi. Here it is. I mean, it was just madness, right? It's madness over there. Just tell Britney Spears we need this new say. It was just crazy stuff over there back in the day. I'm like, tell her to get off my stage. Like, tell Britney Spears. That level of just, you know, just, I mean, it's just unreal. And I remember one of the TDs that were just, you will hear crazy things. That it's like so far outside the realm of normal. Just fix your face. Just fix your face. Just act like it's normal. It's not. But it's their normal, right? Like, what Tesla color you got? I got this. I mean, it's crazy. Like, just rarefied air. I mean, when I walked in and saw that his editorial was a 5.1 surround sound theater, and that's his editing bay, you're at a whole different level. Oh, and by the way, here's gravity. You've got a sneak preview because. They want to steal. I mean, it's just all these things that are just, there's no reason. And I'm glad to do amazing work and just kind of be there to kind of see it firsthand. It was just such a treat, but I knew I wasn't going to be there that much longer because I just had other things to do, but I root for all of them. I really do. And I remember one of my, my old friends, she runs a VFX club and she was taking a picture. I'm like, wait a minute, is that my old office? Yeah. We've talked a little bit about the stresses of the job and how it can be all encompassing and, you know, sun up to sun up. I'm curious how, you know, as somebody that's at the front lines of this, how has the shift to work from home affected, not necessarily the production, but like the, the trying to find the balance that's already so difficult to find when now you're working from your bedroom? The interesting thing is like, I was already kind of working from home before COVID hit, you know, because that's the freelance life. Like I don't have an office to go to. I wasn't living that life. So I was always making movies from my kitchen table. Um, I'd go out and shoot and then come back and pose from my kitchen. And I remember when I was working on Raised by Wolves with Billy Brooks, um, you know, Billy Brooks is now on Doctor Who right now, but back time he had Mind a Machine and we were working on Ridley Scott's. I was working in DC and the team was in LA and New Zealand. So I was able to start first, do all my little prep get ready for the team. And so it all, I, I was always able, especially since living overseas, use that 24 hour clock to my advantage. So once they turned over the shots to New Zealand, New Zealand worked all night. And then I, I took, I took turn two days into one, the tricks of the trade for me, but I always find a way to kind of decompress. Like I still, you know, my, my past life, I was a dancer and I was a dance minor. And so when I was in New Zealand, I just took all the dance, right. I did I did bachata, I did hip hop, 
I even did pole dance. I was like, I would not recommend that. That's not for the week. That is really hard. Um, and I you know, ended up with Pilates, which I'm still, you know, doing. Um, but I think I'm just going to go back to just walking and just finding a space for yourself every day. Some people meditate. I just need to move my body before I kind of sit down and uh, just really finding that mind body connection, whatever that means for you, yoga, you know, spin, something to kind of help just, de- you know, alleviate some of that, you know, stress because that stress will kill you if you don't find a way to figure out because it's a lot. I was going to ask you about decompressing. So you've answered that question, but you mentioned something which I thought was interesting and that's like the f- making two days into one of work. So how, what does your day look like? So my day, usually I'm up doing some kind of exercise, either I'm in class at 6.30 in the morning, 6 to 7.30 in the morning, just for an hour, I'm either walk in for that amount of time or in a class. And then my best, my best productive times are in the morning. So between when I come back, I'm energized, I, I'll do all my kind of thinking work between like uh, nine and uh, two, four o'clock, I'm done. Like I can't do anything after that. So it's really intense uh, burst of of things uh, to do. But yeah, I'm definitely a morning person, which is why nights for me are the worst because I don't get the, I really hate them. I really hate them with a passion. I hate night shoots so much, but I can't seem to have a movie that I'm not night shooting. You've been over the course of your career at the forefront of basically all of the major advancements in, you know, visual effects. I'm wondering what for you is the most exciting thing out there right now that gets you like excited and why? I think the best thing is like how I think the game engine Unreal, which is now turning standard. I remember when that was not standard back in the days of EA, everyone was kind of building their own thing. The fact that it's so accessible, the fact that it's free, the fact that, you know, they're, they're training professionals to kind of cross over visual effects professionals and kind of come in to kind of see how powerful the tools are. Um, and just opening the minds of the young kids who don't need to be in a studio to get access to those tools and just seeing how they're used. I mean, they're used in live action now, you know, in the volume they're used for, you know, little indie game makers, they're using it. Um, they're using the meta metaverse. I mean, like all that, I think that's, that's for me, I get really jazzed about, um, that it's just, you don't have to do a green screen anymore. You just, you know, put it into a game engine and set the camera and make sure all the perspectives are 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 right and um i think that's pretty exciting because then the actors don't have to work against nothing anymore they see it right in front of them which in which includes it's still a trillion dollars a day thank you epic if you want to use that stage because i did visit the west world so i'm like how much did a guy all right connie but uh but other than that <laughs> you know it's still great right it's still it still beats like going to location and all that stuff like, but yeah they're all rocket scientists and i think it's only a bit better i all my dream is that always like the holodeck will be real one day i'm like one day the holodeck will be real and we could all work and play in it that's uh what i see for the future um what would be if you only had one piece of advice that you could give somebody that wants to start in the industry what would that one piece of advice be be yourself know your boundaries and make sure you're having fun. Yeah. Yeah, because it's not, I mean, if it's not fun, don't do it. It's too hard. It's entirely too hard. And I remember, you know, I was, I was at my, uh, we're, as we were doing our overnights, <laughs> I was talking to the EP and the director. I was like, people think this is exciting. This is fun. This is not fun. <laughs> this is not fun at all. With a red carpet, like, Woo-hoo! like that is not where you make anything. That's like the definitely celebratory stuff. Even the talent. 
And I'm like, they're in their trailers right now. Like, we're out here. <laughs> they're in the communities resting, sleeping. No, we're out here in the front line, set up these shots. And that was our conversation with Audria Tops Harjo. You can find out more about Audria and her current project, Inclusion FX, at inclusionfx.com. The Sparkcast is a production of the Spark Computer Graphics Society. Opening and closing credits by Michael Edland. Editing and additional production support by Joshua Peterman. For more about SparkCG and our upcoming events, visit sparkcg.org.